Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined again by Andrea Lipinski. Uh, we are about to start a cycle on the Oresteia. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's the three part, three plays by uh, Aeschylus, uh, Agamemnon, The Libation Bearers, and Eumenides. And we have brought uh, a blast from the past who who loves the Oresteia on with us this time. So I'm Really excited to announce that Brian Phillips has agreed to join us for these episodes. So, Brian, say hello to the audience. Hello, audience. Thanks for having me. Uh, I don't know how I feel about being called a blast from the past, but <laughs> I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> Listen, it's longer than you think, man. We've been, I've been, it's been a while. As for those of you who don't know, Brian Phillips, uh, obviously, was with Cersei for quite a long time. He was, if you went to our conferences anytime in the last 10, 15 years, you saw him as our MC. Um, obviously, he did a lot more than that. He, he did revisions on the last edition of uh, Andrew's book, uh, Classical Education. Um, he taught many, many things through the Cersei Institute over the years. And he kept getting busier and busier with his own church and and the 14 different careers he's had in the last three years. And so, <laughs> we, uh, approximately, yeah. <laughs> We haven't been able to have him around as much as we like, but uh, we're really glad he decided to join us. Yeah, good to be with you guys. Thanks. So I know Brian's read this several times. That's why we uh, decided to have him on. Andrea, what's your experience with uh, the Overstay Ahead? Is this a first time, a tenth time? It's overdue classics for me. Excellent. <laughs> Still the same. Uh, but yeah, when you asked the whole Cersei team, you know, who who wants to come on and do or read the Oresteia with Brian and me, I jumped because I wanted to be with Brian. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. This is my first time through too. So, um, you know, I'm I'm the least educated person in my house behind my wife and our three children that she educated. So, so I'm, well, that's, I'm, that's kind of the idea though, right? Right. You know, yeah, eventually, yeah. yeah. I, I realized when I got into classical education that uh, no matter what I did, I was going to be perpetually over-degreed and undereducated yeah. for the rest of my yeah. life because I've got more degrees than I have education. So, oh, um, yeah. well, Brian, we're going to give you the honors as our guest to give us kind of our our short uh, summary here of of this play, Agamemnon, uh, which starts off our cycle. If you would, sir. Okay. Um, so this. Uh, the Oresteia is a is a trilogy. In fact, I think it's the only surviving trilogy of Greek plays in in the full sense. Um, and is written, of course, by Aeschylus, who's called the father of Greek tragedy. And I don't know how much biographical info you want, but he he was born near Athens around five twenty five BC, I think, and lived around the same time as Herodotus and Sophocles and Euripides and died before Aristophanes was born. But um, so he lived during the time of a lot of what we would think of as being the most significant Greek writers, you know, historians, writers of tragedy and comedy and, and so on. But uh, this, this trilogy is, um, is interesting in that we, we put a lot of emphasis and rightly so on the works of Homer the Iliad and the Odyssey, but this tells the story of Agamemnon and his house and what happens, you know, we know about what happens to Achilles. We know what happens to Odysseus when he returns home, but this is the homecoming story of Agamemnon and what happens afterwards. So it is, of course, a trilogy. As you mentioned earlier, we've got Agamemnon is the title of the first play, Libation Bearers, and then Eumenides. So we go from the first play being the homecoming of Agamemnon and how he is received. 
And then the aftermath of that, I don't know how much, I don't want to ruin it um, for people who haven't read it yet and are just looking for a little background. So we'll save what happens in this play. But um, let's just, we'll, we'll give sort of a teaser and say that um, the, <laughs> the happy, the happy romantic ending that you see in the Odyssey, if that's what you're looking for, you can just go ahead and stop this podcast and move on to like Jane Austen or something. Um, Cause you're not going to find it here. Um, so this is what happens to Agamemnon, maybe our least favorite person in all of the works of Homer, rightly so. You know, I think uh, Scylla and Charybdis rank rank higher for me um, than Agamemnon does. And so what happens to Agamemnon when he comes home? That's basically what's going on in this play. Is that is that a good enough synopsis? <laughs> Ag- Agamemnon gets everything that you would want to happen to Agamemnon when he comes back home. Okay. But my favorite part is he ranks lower. <laughs> Yeah, then, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I uh, I like I like the sea monsters better than I like Agamemnon. Okay, that's just me. That's one man's opinion. Yeah, just, they're just monsters being monsters, right? I mean, the monsters right. a monster. Absolutely, absolutely. But this is a man being a monster. That's a good point, right? And that's a different problem altogether, mm-hmm. right? Andrew, I know this, you said this is your first time too. I just I'll just start off by saying that what struck me first, like kind of first thoughts, was how much exposition we get in the very beginning, like for a long time between the chorus and the Herald, especially the mm-hmm. chorus though, that was, uh, I was surprising for me. I wasn't really kind of expecting that we get a lot of this kind of backstory of that you had mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, well, we, we kind of start to find out why, why Eggman was even maybe worse than we anticipated from the, uh, if we've only been in the Iliad. So, um, with the treatment of his daughter and things like that, but that, but just the, just the fact that we get so much of that in exposition, as their people are kind of waiting, waiting for these ships to return. is interesting to me. Is that something that carries out through a lot of the Greek plays, Brian, or is that kind of unique to this? Do you know? Um, I, I don't know if it's, if it's a consistent feature. I know that um, the Orsay is interesting to me because it's, it's one play where, and, and that's an important detail to mention is that it is a play. And so one of the things that we kind of have a tendency to do like reading Shakespeare or reading other plays, especially more modern ones, is I don't know how how much attention we really pay to things like stage directions and all that. And and that's actually really important in the Oresteia is you have to read all of the italicized, you know, and they moved here or this happened or this is what the scene is like. Um, and Aeschylus is a, a master of giving you a feel for um it's setting the mood you know for a particular scene and the chorus in which this is not that unusual but i think uh, if i remember correctly aeschylus was one of the first and one of the um the made the best use of the chorus they function kind of like a narrator um giving you a sense of what's going on even off scene and in greek plays um you know, we're accustomed now to all sorts of things being on scene, you know, both in actual plays and on television and movies and so on. Um, so you have to pay attention to the chorus and you have to pay attention to the stage directions because a lot of what's being described in this play, because it's a tragedy and it is violent at times, um, a lot of the things are are obscene 
where we get the word right off scene they're not they're not showing it but the chorus is telling us what's going on so um, they really do give a lot of background and really do help set the the mood for what's going on in the play hmm. like i mean i i think even the the first the before there's even a word spoken in agamemnon you see the stage direction right time and scene a night in the uh in the tenth and final autumn of the trojan war so um if you you know much about that and this is where we're kind of at a disadvantage with the the readers and viewers of Aeschylus's plays right is that they would have known oh the end of the war um but uh says that it's at the house of Atreus and Argos before it an altar stands unlit that's important right no no reason to offer thanks to the gods sacrifices to the gods right now the altar's unlit a watchman on the high roof fights to stay awake so you have this sense of sorrow darkness gloom you know no mm -hmm. reason for gladness war for 10 years all of the men are gone the king is gone and that's kind of where everything opens it's a very dark scene yeah i was glad you mentioned the set directions because mine also mentions uh or says clytemnestra's entrances are made from a door in the center of the stage all others from the wings so every time she's coming in and out, it's it's central on the stage, which was, which I, which as you read along, as you continue to go through, you start to see the importance of that. You know, her centrality to this play, even oh, yeah. though it's even though it's named for Agamemnon, her right. centrality to the play. Sorry, Andrea, you were going to say something. That's where I was headed. That okay. I, I, you know, just by reading that from the beginning, that he lets us know at the beginning how Clytemnestra is going to enter and exit the entire time and how everybody else is going to enter and exit the entire time. And we're not near her yet. It's one thing if we got that stage direction when she came. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But we get it at the beginning. Yeah. And yeah. that's a translator's choice, possibly. Um, yeah, and I, I, it reminds me of something that... Um, I'm <laughs> I hate to mention a name because I'm not really sure who I heard first say this. Um sure. I think it might have been Andrew Kern. I think it was either Andrew Kern or Wes Callahan that I heard mentioned that they they were arguing that the Odyssey, even though it was named for Odysseus, was really a song for Penelope. Um, and I think the same could be said here hmm. for the play Agamemnon. It's named for Agamemnon, but it's really a song for Clytemnestra. Um, it's just a really different kind of song, <laughs> you yeah. Know, um, as we'll as we'll see, you know, going through, um, it's not a love poem. Yeah, because Agamemnon arrives pretty late. I mean, yeah. for a play name for him, right? Well, it's interesting right. you say it's not a love. He doesn't poem. stay long. Spoiler alert: He <laughs> doesn't stay long. Because, yeah. uh, like, out of that first scene with the Watchman, um, I. I marked only one thing in it where he says, may my king come home and I take up within his hand, the hand I love. Hmm. Right. So it's not a love song. You've just told me that. And yet it opens where here's this watchman looking for this hand that he loves of his king. Yeah. He's longing, longing for the return of the king. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But I didn't know the very next line for mine. I'm in line 35 ish. The rest I leave to silence for an ox stands huge upon my tongue. And later Clytemnestra is likened to an ox. And I didn't know, is he saying she stands heavy on his tongue? 
I didn't, I haven't read it enough times for that. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I think it's, um, I think it's sort of an expression of hesitation. You know, he's been 10 years waiting and now they've returned home. You know, the signal fires have been lit and all that, but um, he doesn't really know. They don't necessarily know what has happened in the, that time away, but that's a good question. Um, I, I've never read it with the idea of it being Clytemnestra being the cause for hesitation. Mm. Um, now, but I mean, knowing the rest of the story, right? <laughs> that would make sense too. Yeah. I just wondered, is that a foreshadowing of that, you know, yeah. in manner? It's, I mean, the signal fires were probably, the signal fires were really a, a like a victory, a sign of okay. victory. So um, most likely um, it's not that he was worried that they were defeated in coming back. But you also, if you see the ships coming home, you might've won the war, but you don't know who made it onto the ships. Okay. Right? So maybe that's okay. part of it too. Okay. That could be it. Yeah. Which we get a little bit of that when, when we find out that they're not really sure if, if, if Menelaus made it back later, right. Yeah. When the Herald comes, there's, there's some storms that have happened. They have no idea if you, they haven't seen him. So they don't know right. one way or the other. Right. Thanks. Which ties in, ties in with the Odyssey. Right. Well. right. Yeah. You know, um, they didn't know for quite some time who all made it back. And um, Telemachus actually went to, went to explore and ask everyone, you know, <laughs> what do you know about what happened to my dad? So, so just because they were returning home and returning home, even in victory, didn't mean that it was necessarily good news. Um, yeah. And it seemed like, it seems like the watchman knew that the signal fires meant victory. And it seems like Clytemnestra knew that, but then she's kind of questioned by the course about the veracity of that. Even mocked, which she then references when she, when it turns out to be true. Yeah. And I, there's this kind of tension through the whole play. We see it later with Agamemnon when he arrives at the palace and he gets out of his chariot and he finds that Clytemnestra has rolled out, literally rolled out the red carpet mm -hmm. um, for him to walk from the chariot to the palace. And he doesn't want to walk on it uh, because he, he recognizes that yes, we, we won the war, but the ships, you know, they were able to come home with a lot fewer ships, right. For a lot of reasons. And we read about that in the Iliad as well, but um, he didn't want to come back and treat this as a complete triumph. You know, mm. He's not celebrating because he knows that there are mothers and fathers who are now mourning because they realized that their sons didn't make it back. So he hesitates to celebrate. So this is not Julius Caesar, you know, riding triumphant through this, through the streets. This is Agamemnon coming home. And actually in one of the few moments where you think, huh, He's showing some humility or understanding or compassion for other people. He doesn't want to walk in on the red carpet when he realizes that some of his people are, are mourning, you know, at their return because of the loss of sons. Do you find that fitting to his character? Um, his hesitation? Yeah. Right. That, um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I... It's hard for me because of where I rank him among sea monsters, um, because my first thought is that 
he's just he's as always a politician right mm-hmm. he wants to save face he doesn't want anyone to he doesn't want to lose votes here i know he's a king not, but he doesn't want to lose face and so he doesn't want to walk on the red carpet and and look bad for it you know so um it's hard to tell when when you get to that point in the play whether he's thinking no this would this would be a really shameful thing to do you know to celebrate amid all this mourning or is it this is the optics are bad you know um Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to tell where he's coming from there that's an interesting question because we get a couple things happening right like one we have a different it's a different author right we we know him primarily from homer's works up to this point i mean at least i do most of us so you have a different author and so is he giving us a different a different take on agamemnon the same way you know i mean i mean obviously virgil paints odysseus in a way different than 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 homer does and then you get to james joyce and you got a whole new <laughs> interpretation but i mean so even in, in a time uh in the same culture we're getting a different a different view on him but even homer kind of gives us like a we see a lot of him in the iliad and we see him to stay proud and then occasionally make the right choice and do the right you know concede but then when we see him in hades in in the odyssey if if we know if we know about what's about to happen in this story from anywhere and you haven't read this yet it's from there right because he goes he he's pretty explicit about what he thinks of his wife and when he's when he's in hades right. and what and what right. went down um yeah so it's, it's just an interesting and we're just getting something like that you raise a good question right is it is it real for is it real for Aeschylus that this is how he he came back more humble and then he and then he gets killed which is kind of an interesting twist right he learns some lessons and comes back more humble and then he gets you know basically sabotaged by his wife Man. and killed or he's- or I, is he you just ruined it? Spoiler, no. complete spoiler. Oh uh, yeah, well they should have read the whole play. They should have read the whole play before right. listening. Yeah. Um, or, or like you're saying, is he just the same old guy? And this is yeah. this is him knowing this is the smart. This is the smart political move as the king to. I came back with a bunch of a bunch of guys in ash in ash and urns. Right. Uh, I probably shouldn't yeah. take off their families too much, right? Yeah. Well, and and I don't I don't know I don't want to jump too far ahead, um, but we kind of have already, so it's, I guess it's okay. Um, is that it's hard for me to have any sort of to give any benefit of the doubt to Agamemnon, where he steps out on this crimson carpet and is like, "Oh, I don't, no, I don't want to. That's not a good idea." You know, you got all these mourning families in Argus, and I'm walking on the red carpet. In, in luxury, you know, in celebration. Um, when in that same chariot is another woman that he brought home. <laughs> so it's kind of hard. It, in my mind, it's hard to square. Like, I don't even, I would even argue that in the Iliad, I don't think there were many decisions that he made where, yes, you could look at it and go, okay, he finally made the right decision. But mm. if we evaluate his decision by the motive, I'm not really sure that he ever makes a genuinely good decision, right? And I'm gotcha. and granted, we're talking about this as Christians. We know that as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just what you do, it's why you do it, right? It's the, the thought and intent of the heart as well. Um, 
it's sort of hard for me to see Agamemnon as a sympathetic character <laughs> in any way, you know. Um, so, but if we want to make an immediate, you know, kind of application to any any husbands, fathers that are listening, it's generally a bad idea to come home from a work trip with another woman. I think we could make that just a direct bullet point. Yeah. Of, am I, is it just me or? Would you underline that one or bold that one or just give it a little star? I mean, I think, <laughs> I think we're on pretty solid ground with that one. I don't think it's going to get us canceled, so. canceled by anybody so. anytime soon. So yeah. yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? One thing I did want to bring up before we go too far in the yeah. play is how many times Agamemnon and Menelaus and actually the whole kingdom of Argos is referred to as the house of Atreus mm-hmm. and Agamemnon and how many times Atreus is mentioned, right? So Agamemnon and Menelaus are, are called the sons of Atreus. Um, the, the palace or the kingdom is referred to as the house of Atreus. Mm-hmm. And again, this is another example of how we're kind of at a disadvantage where the the original audience would have understood the significance of that, but I'm not really sure that many, you know, many people do now because this play that really the whole trilogy in some ways is about not just the return of Agamemnon and like the spiral of this kingdom, you know, that happens after that, but it's really about, um, and to open up, you know, a real can of worms here. It really is about generational sins and, and a, you know, the generational cursing is almost, uh, mm-hmm. is probably the better way to put it. So I would, I would argue that if you, and I'm, I'm using the, the Robert Fagel's translation is like the penguins, penguin classics edition. But I would argue that one of the most important pages, if you have a copy of the Oristea is the genealogy page. So in the edition that I have, there's a uh, way in the back of the book, there's a genealogy and it, it shows you where uh, Orestes, who is, he comes in much later, of course, um, in the second play, but uh, where did Atreus and Menelaus and Agamemnon and, you know, all of them, uh, what's their family tree? And that becomes really, really important. Okay. And so in here, thank you for opening that door. Um, this, the, I don't have in my version, I don't have a genealogy page. And so I was trying to piece it together in my head from reading. So the family curse that I understand so far, it has something to do with, is it Menelaus and Agamemnon's other brother who eats his children? It was actually, so... (laughs) If you if I don't know how much time we have, but you can go back. This is a multi generational okay. curse, basically. So okay. if you start with their, so Agamemnon's great grandfather, okay, um, Tantalus. Tantalus. That's the, I knew there was. Yeah. So you, you might actually know the story of Tantalus without realizing it, and that's he was. Um, he was punished by the gods. For some reason, he was a friend of the gods for a while. And I don't know why. It's really strange. His whole story is that he's, he might be worse than Agamemnon. <laughs> he, he, he was worse than Agamemnon. There we go. Um, yeah. And he was, for some reason, he was a one of the sons of Zeus who had a mortal 
well, actually, I think she was a sea nymph mom and Zeus was the father. And so I think because of that, he was befriended by a lot of the gods. Uh, and he, there's all sorts of legends, myths and stories around Tantalus, like really strange things. Like he stole Zeus's dog one time um, and, and hit him. Um, he would overhear the gods, you know, talking and secretly listen to their conversations and then go tell other people about it. So he's just like a terrible person. Um, and then there was one event that was sort of the straw that uh, broke the camel's back. And um, he invited the gods over for dinner. And then uh, depending on the, the edition you read or the, the version you read, um, he realized he didn't have enough food. And so he killed his own, his own son, which was Pelops. So if you go down the family tree, you've got Tantalus and then his son Pelops as P-E-L-O-P-S. And he cooked him. He killed his son, cooked his own son, and served him to the gods for dinner. Oh, boy. Now, right. Nice guy. So when the gods discover this, they punish him, and they also resurrect Pelops. Uh, okay. So there's two kind of really important events there. That is. And then... Uh, um, so Tantalus is then punished and you might've heard this where he's punished by he's neck deep in water, like for all of eternity, he's neck deep in water. And, but he, every time he stoops to drink the water, the water recedes. So he can't get to it. So he's always thirsty and right above his head is like the most fruitful tree, most fruitful branches. And every time he tries to rise up, to get the food, the branches, the wind comes and the branches rise just above his reach. And so that's where we get the word tantalizing is from the legend of Tantalus. And um, so, and it's the gods punished him in this way because he was the type of man whose appetites would never be satisfied. And so he just, he never could actually receive the gifts he had like Zeus as his father, the friendship of the gods, uh, dining with the gods, being able to visit Mount Olympus, all of these good gifts that he received. He never received them in gratitude. He always wanted something else, something else. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he has for all of eternity. He always wants something else and he can't have it. Mm -hmm. So this is the lineage of Agamemnon, mm -hmm. right? And then Pelops is brought back to life. He's really the only sympathetic character in the family line. <laughs> um, and if you think about it, um, and then um, as you go, uh, further down the family line, you have it divided out. So Pelops had two sons, okay. Atreus um, and Thyestes. So if you draw it out, the the family tree, yeah, you've got Thyestes. So Thyestes commits adultery with Atreus's wife. Okay. Um, Atreus finds out and kills the sons of Thyestes. And here we recognize this really weird theme, cooks them and serves them to Thyestes for dinner. Oh, to his dad. Yeah. To his, their dad. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Now, Thyestes would later, he had another son, I guess this. Mm. Dude, mm. That should ring a bell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I guess this is, is um, Agamemnon's cousin. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So when you read the play, if you're like, who is this guy? It's not just some guy that lived in Argos. It's actually the King, Agamem King Agamemnon's cousin. Yeah. Um, 
So thiestes then, and stop me if I'm not making sense or jumping too fast here, but thiestes realizes, of course, that this is a human being served to him for dinner and finds out it's his son's. He pronounces a curse, calls on the gods to curse, kind of like a woe in in scripture. A woe is pronounced over the house of Atreus. Ah. That, vi- that violence and bloodshed would never leave the house of Atreus. Mm. So okay. when we open the play and it's, you know, the house yeah. of Atreus and you've got the watchmen and it says not crouched on the roofs of Agamemnon. He's crouched on the roofs of Atreus and over and over again. Menelaus and Agamemnon are referred to as the sons of Atreus. And so it makes more sense. Like Menelaus, who, again, he's he's far more sympathetic character. It's complicated, but definitely more sympathetic. But you get now when you see the rage of Menelaus, who's willing to send all of Greece to war. Now you kind of get it. Like this is maybe part of the curse. And you see Agamemnon is the same way. And now as we're reading the play, Agamemnon, he comes back home to the house of Atreus, which is under a curse where violence and bloodshed will never leave. Mm. Um, So that's real foreshadowing going on there. That if we understand the family tree, this gets messy in every sense of the word. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Well, and I'm thinking the chorus, they jump in pretty quick, right? Mm-hmm. And by line around 70, they say, you cannot burn flesh or pour unguents, not innocent cool tears that will soften the glass of stiff anger. Right? That, that's part of the curse in a way, that you're calling upon their stiff anger that was called upon by Thaistes. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, and so that right after that, then the, the chorus says, and I didn't understand this, but we dishonored old in our bones. How are they dishonored? Like old in our bones, they stay here um, with the strength of a baby. So they're, they're old and aged walking with the cane that they talk about the three legs. Is it just the dishonor of not being able to go to battle? I, I think so. Is okay. that, you know, it's sort of like they're saying our, our glory days are behind us. You know? Okay. Um, <laughs> they're, they're reminiscing over high school football. Okay. Um, that kind of thing. And so it's a lot like Ecclesiastes, a lot of the same. Um, yeah. when, he, when Solomon describes aging, you know, the stooped man, the three, the three legs, the child's strength upon a stick and so on. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's a good question, but it does kind of help set the stage where you've got the chorus is, explained as these are the old men of Argus who remained behind while the young men and the king went away to war. And now as they're coming back, these are the men who are just, you know, walking about town, you know, maybe telling stories, trying to find out what's going on and, and all that. It's, um, yeah. uh, so this is it, because he says, it says a little bit later and I, I think we're using different translations, which is fine, but yeah. it's because it's the same idea that, um, Round, it's around line 90 for me, but old men mm-hmm. or children once again, mm-hmm. a dream that sways and wavers into the hard light of day. But you, daughter of Leda, Queen Clytemnestra, what mm-hmm. now, what news, what message? 
drives you through the citadel burning victims. And of course, talking about the sacrifices again. You know, so we started mm-hmm. off with the altar unlit and now mm-hmm. the altar is lit and they want to know, you know, what what's going on. So they it's it's really it's kind of neat where um the chorus is portrayed as just a group of old men who have nothing else to do. So they're just roaming around trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, this is, it's so long ago in such a different part of the world and, so, you know, incredibly different circumstances. And yet in my small town in North Carolina, I'm like, I know those guys, you know, <laughs> like they hang out at the hardware store. <laughs> this yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, it's the same kind of image that you have. Yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining that uh, the group of guys in, in coming to America in the barbershop and the group of in the old men sitting around arguing about fighters and uh, what's the other one? Oh, uh, who was who's the greatest boxer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you ever seen Return to Me, which is like a David Duchovny movie, but there's like it was like uh, it was Carol. What's his name's last film? Uh, the one that was on All in the Family. O'Connor. Yeah, yeah, Carol O'Connor. Yeah, Carol and like the, he owns a restaurant, but it's all these old men just sitting there every night at the efforts closed, yeah. like talking about this kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating, right? So, in that regard, because they don't have strength, they see themselves as dishonored. They know they've just, they've said there's nothing that we can do to soften the God's stiff anger. And yet they repeat, sing sorrow, sorrow, but good went out in the end. Right. So hearing the house of Atreus that you've just helped us connect and the curse here that will never leave the house. This is still a people with some type of hope. I I think so. And and I think that that's why you see throughout um, the, the chorus appealing to the gods or appealing to Zeus in particular hmm. um, is that they recognize that this curse while called upon by Thyestes, this curse really is from the gods. And so um, there is this, this sense where, you know, it's, it's tragic because you pick up on the fact that they are, they're despairing, you know, the the whole scene, the whole play opens and it's just darkness. Mm -hmm. It's darkness and waiting and longing. And even when it seems like there's going to be good news, like the signal fires are lit, we won. Troy has fallen, mm. but there's always. You've probably met people like this, right? We've all met people like this. We've all felt like this, where things are going. Seems like things are going well, but it's the kind of person who's been beaten down so many times that they're like, "Well, what's going to go wrong then?" You know, they're Is just waiting on them. Yeah, yeah, they're waiting on the next bad thing to happen. Um, so even in the best of news. Which, you know, for a, I mean, imagine that for a whole kingdom that's been plunged into war for 10 years and the ships are finally sailing home. And it's like, oh, this is wonderful. You know, the, let's, let's offer sacrifices to the gods. And yeah, but, you know, so I think that there is this real mixture of uh, despair and yet longing for something else to, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why it reminds me of. Um, I'm trying to remember where it is in the Gospels. I, I can't remember an exact reference right now. Um, uh, the the man who was lying by the pool for 38 years, 
Hmm. Right. He'd been lame for 38 years. And Jesus asked him, if you think about it, one of the weirdest questions, do you want to be healed? <laughs> right. And someone says that after 38 years, are you just, are you comfortable in your misery or do you want to be made well? And I feel hmm. like that's the whole kingdom of Argus is like, they've had this multi-generational curse and it's been all darkness, all gloom, all despair. And, you know, the violence and bloodshed has not departed from the house of the king. And, you know, here we have, uh, believe it or not, even though this is a really dark play, the trilogy itself is not. Mm-hmm. So it's all headed in this tra- trajectory of almost as if, okay, house of Atreus, do you want to be made well? You know, do you want to be healed? And that's kind of the, the aim that this is taking, but. Yeah, it seems to be begging for the curse breaker, right? It, right. This setup right. in this play. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, sounds a little familiar. Okay, I want to get into the action of the play a little bit because I kind of, you know, I, I had, I knew kind of what was coming from reading the Odyssey and I knew, you know, uh, everyone's, you know, there had been some misdeeds for everyone. Um, but I was struck by Clytemnestra's first lines to or what she when she when she addresses the herald and it's this kind of um make sure you tell him that i've been super faithful and um you know, how she you know it was it just struck me as like she's she's um kind of going out of her way to, to have the herald tell agamemnon that she's been very loyal to him since he left but then i don't know it just it was um it, it it was a little uh, jolting for me to read that, I guess. Um, Can you point me where, Brandon? I'm looking around like 600 to 610, somewhere in there. He says, uh, but now, she's, she's saying, but now how to best speed my preparation to receive my honored Lord come home again? What else is light more sweet for women to behold than this, to spread the gates before her husband home from war? And saved by God's hand. Take this message to the king. Come and with speed back to the city that longs for him. And may he find a wife within his house as true as on the day he left her. Watchdog of the house, gentle to him alone, fierce to his enemies. And such a woman in all her ways as this. Who has not broken the seal upon her in the length of days. With no man else have I known delight nor any shame of evil speech. More than I know how to temper bronze. You know, you put those words along with the fact that she rolls out the red carpet. Um, it, in my mind, I'm thinking the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> that's in the, that's that's rolling in the back of my head. Like, seems like she's uh, saying a little too much on this on this account. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's it, so. What's interesting to me is that I mean, we know from later on that a lot of what she says is just a lie, mm-hmm. right? Um, but all of those lies, in a sense, are couched in something that, that is true. It's kind of like a riddle. Okay. Um, where, so around, um, <laughs> so line 599 for me, same passage that you were just reading, um, says, tell him that and have him come with speed, the people's darling, how they long for him. 
and for his wife, may he return and find her true at Hall, just as the day he left her faithful to the last. So now this requires again that we know what happened the day he left her. Do you guys you, do you remember? I'm going to play one of those annoying games of guess what's in the teacher's mind. You know, <laughs> do you remember? I that? don't know. I know the game. Okay. I mean, yeah. the, sac- the sacrifice takes place that day, like the day he's leaving, basically. Yeah. That's yeah. the day he the lies. He the, lies yeah, to his wife, that, though. Right. First, he, lies and says yeah, he he's going to yeah. um, marry her off. This is all for good. Mm-hmm. So send her to me now. Mm-hmm. And then he sacrifices her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's back to, um, let's see, it's the, it's the chorus. Yeah. The chorus, they, is the, the they, they sing it to us. They tell us right. about it. Right. Um, this is back around line 222 or so. Yet he had the heart to sacrifice his daughter to bless the war that avenged a woman's loss, a bridal right that sped the men of war. That's what happened the day he left. So Mm -hmm. Clytemnestra, in one sense, is she's telling the truth. You're going to find me just the way you left me. Mm -hmm. Angry, mourning, bitter, enraged, and ready to kill you. Since Brandon already ruined it, right? Um, So... (laughs) You could say, I mean, she's, wait, she's lying. Uh, but really, she's telling the truth in some in some ways. And the Herald um, says it right after her. The Herald says, a vaunt like this, so yeah. loaded as it is with truth. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It well this, becomes a highborn lady to proclaim. To me, I found this play yeah. repeatedly is trying to draw out womanness. Yeah, yeah. What's appropriate for a woman to do or not to do. Mm. Yeah. Um, and later when the, when she does kill Agamemnon, and again, we'll get into that in more detail, I imagine, but when she does kill him and she actually, the chorus, the old men are like, how could you do such a thing? And she reminds them of everything Agamemnon had done. Then they go, oh, you know, and they, they just sort of, that's the, like, what do you say to that? Right. Um, I, I don't agree with what you did but I understand why you did it. It's sort of the response that they get. But it's interesting to me in the Fagel's translation um, back to uh, around line 600 or so, when mm-hmm. she says, and for his wife, may he return and find her true at Hall just as the day he left her faithful to the last, a watchdog gentle to him alone, savage to those who cross his path. This is really neat. I have not changed. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't say that. Just, I like that line. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that to me, there's a lot of foreshadowing before she ever meets Agamemnon, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. She has not forgotten a thing. Mm-hmm. It's been 10 years away at war, but he's she has not forgotten a thing that he did before he left. And then as if to seal his own fate, he shows up with Cassandra that he's, you know, stole from Troy and comes back in the chariot with another woman. Yeah. <laughs> Which again, we all agreed is a bad idea. Bad move. I mean, so, okay. If we can just jump here, cause you were talking about, you know, did she lie? Um, and Brian, I think is positing. She doesn't lie. She's actually telling the truth and she's telling it slant. I would say the same thing, because if you go to, for me, it's about line 1372, right after 
The doors of the palace opened, disclosing the bodies of Agamemnon and Cassandra, with Clytemnestra standing over them. And she says, Much have I said before to serve necessity, but I will take no shame now to unsay it all. Right? And I don't find that to be like that she lied. How else could I, arming hate against hateful men disguised in seeming tenderness, fence high the, na- the nets of ruin beyond overleaping? Thus to me, the conflict born of ancient bitterness is not a thing new thought upon, but pondered deep in time. I stand now where I struck him down. The thing is done. Thus have I wrought, and I will not deny it now. That he may not escape nor beat aside his death, as fishermen cast their huge circling nets, I spread deadly abundance of rich robes and caught him fast. I struck him twice. In two great cries of agony, he buckled at the knees and fell. Like she tells it all um with without shame <laughs> yeah and i mean one of the one of the most powerful lines really in that same context as the mm-hmm. this is after after she's killed him um mm-hmm. again this in in mind starts at line fourteen twenty five. so after leader uh, the leader of the course says, you appall me, you, your brazen words, exulting over your fallen king. And she says, and you, you treat me like some desperate woman. My heart is steel. Well, you know, praise me, blame me as you choose. It's all one. Here is Agamemnon. My husband made a corpse by this right hand, a masterpiece of justice. Done is done. Um, and, you know, she has the the dagger still in her right hand and she refers to it as a masterpiece of justice. In other words, this is, this is deserved. Um, so, um, and it is interesting too, later around 1460, um, she says this, this, uh, then learn this too, the power of my oaths by the child's rights I brought to birth, by ruin, by fury, the three gods to whom I sacrificed this man. I swear my hopes will never walk the halls of fear so long as I guess this lights the fire of my heart. Now, it's interesting to me that there she points out that her killing of Agamemnon was a sacrifice to the gods. Mm-hmm which is exactly how Agamemnon justified the sac- the, the killing of uh, Iphigenia, their daughter, mm-hmm. um, to the gods. So Agamemnon sacrifices their daughter to get favorable winds to sail to Troy. And Clytemnestra says, I sacrifice Agamemnon to appease the Furies. Um, because this is the interesting thing, of course, the Furies would... Um, were the 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 ones who would avenge the shedding of blood by one family member against another family member, right? Not so, within a family. That's right. Like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's it's interesting that here you have Agamemnon justifying his his actions mm-hmm. uh, to satisfy uh, Artemis, I believe, memory serves, and then mm-hmm. uh, and. She basically says what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So, um, mm-hmm. and she uses the same rationale for, for sacrificing him. Huh. Man, the more we talk about it, the more I'm, I'm, cause you brought it up at the beginning, the, the interesting comparison to, to Odysseus and Penelope schemes mm-hmm. continues to unfold, right? Like 
um, both women have to employ some deception, but both in the name of, of, of justice, it's just in a different, you know, she's, Penelope's delaying the suitors so they get their justice uh, through, through deception. And then I'm not sure here though, is to deliver it to Agamemnon. Um, they make an interesting kind of case study of the two, of two women. Um, but then also the husbands that they're, that they're waiting for, right. Are two, two very different men. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that was another interesting thing. We don't have time to maybe pursue this here, but do you, do we do like show notes for this? I'm sorry yeah, because I'm yeah, such we, a blast. I'm a blast from the past. Forgive me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll put some stuff in the show notes for sure. So, um, and I don't get royalties on this just for the record, but it, because we don't have time to talk about it in the episode, if you go through Agamemnon, the play Agamemnon, and you go through the Odyssey and you compare the weaving that Penelope does with the references of weaving that Clytemnestra does. Um, and I wrote some articles for Circe. Uh, it's on the website somewhere, I'm sure, um, on on uh, weaving and, and I compared Penelope and Clytemnestra in this sense and the way that they use their weaving and where Penelope is using her weaving to delay the suitors and to, to buy more time for Odysseus to return home um, to secure his kingdom. And then Clytemnestra does her weaving to bring about Agamemnon's destruction. Mm. And um, it's just a, uh, the stories really couldn't couldn't be more parallel in that sense. But so maybe like if we can find a link to it, that might be pretty cool for, for people mm -hmm. who are interested in comparing it. I yeah. really enjoyed writing it. I don't know if anybody enjoyed reading it, but I enjoyed writing it. No, I'm sure <laughs> I, I, I took it down. Sure. I'll, get it, I'll get it in the show notes for sure. I'll get the, nice. that link. Put nice. it in there. Cool. And the one line that I grabbed onto was around 810. The, when Agamemnon enters in a chariot with Cassandra behind him. And the chorus then speaks to him right then. So at the end of that, before Agamemnon speaks back to the chorus, the chorus tells him, ask all men, you will learn in time which of your citizens have been just in the city's sway, which were reckless, right? And so for me, that hearkened back to Odysseus hiding himself within his home, well, on his land and checking out each man to know, right? But so the chorus has told him, you'll find out go talk to them. Right. You know, and the only one he talks to is his wife. And to me, that his first words to her are not kind. Are you talking about around um, 795? Uh, no. Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's when he first starts to speak, but yeah, he says first to, to Argos first and to the gods within the land, I must give due greetings. All right. So I feel like he, he yeah, handles everybody yeah. else. Then Sorry, it's my 795. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Clytemnestra comes forward. She speaks to him. And then she he responds. And he says, daughter of Leda, you who kept my house for me, there's one way your welcome matched my absence well. You strained to give it length. You strained to give it great length. Yet, properly to praise me thus belongs by right to other lips, not yours. Right? So he's instantly reprimanding her first thing. You did it wrong. Yeah. And all this, do not try in woman's ways to make me delicate. Right. So we're back to understanding what's a woman's 
what's what should a woman do or not do, say or not say. Don't try a woman's ways to make me delicate, nor as if it were some Asiatic bow down to earth and with wide mouth cry out to me, nor cross my path with jealousy by strewing the ground with robes. Such state becomes the gods and none beside. Like, like, I mean, he just, he opens unkind. Right. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's why it's difficult for me to think because one of the first decisions he has to make here is whether to walk on the red, the, interestingly in the stage directions in mind the crimson red tapestries yeah yeah, yeah. which is significant and this is so this is it's blood red mm-hmm. uh, basically and she plays along mm-hmm. which again that sort of image of weaving here she's she plays along with it and at, at one point around 898 or so um, yeah we just have to kind of find the ballpark in each other's translation. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to go get Fagels before next time, though. Um, I'm going to get a Fagels. It's it's good. It's really good. Plus, yeah. you'll get the genealogy, right? Yeah, um, I think I want that. But uh, she says, come to me now, my dearest. So knows like she's he's being rude to her. And so she's just sort of piling on the kind words down from the car of war but never set the foot that stamped out Troy on earth again, my great one. Women, why delay? You have your orders. Pave his way with tapestries. Quickly, let the red stream flow. (laughs) So you get the image she's going for. So she wants everybody to see he has, for over 10 years, been walking on the blood of others. Yeah. River of blood, right? That he's basically... Yes. And then this is the best part of this to me. Let the red stream flow and bear him home to the home he never hoped to see. Justice lead him in. Oh boy. Leave all the rest to me. Oh my goodness. You talk about foreshadowing. Like she's um when when you understand the whole background. And then when you see it, you go back and you're, oh my goodness. She was basically saying, come on in, honey. Welcome home. I'm going to murder you. you know? oh. oh yeah, um. my line, my last two lines, and this is the Lattimore. He says, in all things else, my heart's unsleeping care, right? It hasn't stopped. My unsleeping care shall act with the God's aid to set aright what fate ordained. Yeah. Here it comes. Yeah. yeah. You know, what's... One other really interesting thing about this play, there, there, there's not just one other, but there's no. one that I want to make sure that I okay. mention is that, so Cassandra in Troy was a prophetess, right? And that's another long story uh, to give the really short, like Reader's Digest version. She was, uh, I believe that, She was a recipient of the affections of Poseidon and she resisted his advances. Like she sort of, uh, I, I, you know, a lot of the gods, you know, tried to meddle with human women and Poseidon in this case was the guilty one. And at the last minute she rebuffs him and says, no, 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 you know, um, I'm not going to have an affair with you and all this. And so he curses her that she will have the gift of true prophecy, but no one will ever believe her. And 
you know, that plays in a lot in Troy. She's on the shores, you know, when the Trojan horse is brought in, she's there. She walks around the horse, touching the legs of the horse and calling out the names of the men who are inside it. No one believes her. Oh, it's just Cassandra. No big deal. I believe, if memory serves, that uh, when Laocoon, the priest, was uh, he came down and warned them about uh, the Trojan horse as well, that the sea serpents came out and uh, drug him and his sons out into the sea. And Cassandra was warning we should listen to him. And the, oh, it's just Cassandra. There we go. You know, so um, even the Greek soldiers who are in the Trojan horse, she's going around saying their names, like circling the horse. And all of the Greek soldiers are hearing their wives, their wives' voices, like as if it's their wives calling to them. And then the, the men of Troy are like, eh, it's just Cassandra. Nobody believes her. And yet when she arrives in Argos, it's interesting that she becomes like another narrator as the story progresses. And so she gets out of the chariot, but she doesn't really go into the house. Uh-huh. So she doesn't cross the, the river of blood, if you will. And she's telling everybody what's going on in the house. But what's really strange to me, and I can't figure this out. So if you guys have any take on this, one of the guards believes her. And it's the first time in her story that she is, she's revealing what's really going on, but it's the first time that someone believes her. Um, And I don't know what to make of that. Uh, Let's see. I'm trying to think of how far back in this it is. Yeah. Yeah, she comes out. No, she, I mean, she actually she does end up she does end up going into the palace. Sorry, um, yeah, thirteen thirty. She goes in on nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see. Let's go further and further. Yeah, now she gives a great amount of backstory. Right. And in that way, you're saying becomes like a narrator. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. So it is, it's later than I was thinking. Um, so it's actually, she actually does end up going in, but she hesitates at first. She yeah. comes back out of the house and, um, and even predicts like her own death in this. The 1330 in mind, she, she says murder, the house breathes with murder, bloody shambles. Mm-hmm. Well, she says, so for me, all right. So she has her, is it her first long yeah, no, it's not her first long one, but it's her long it's her first long one for me. Uh it's at 1178. No longer shall my prophecies like some young girl new married glance from under veils, but bright and strong as winds blow into morning and the sun's uprise shall wax along and swell like some great wave to burst at last upon the shining of this agony. Right? So she's not going to be timid like some young girl anymore. She is going to burst her prophecy like a bright sun and a huge wave. Um, And then the chorus and her go back and forth for a little bit. And by line 12, uh, 12. Um, So she tells the story of Lokes. How do you say it? Lokes, Lokeus, the L-O-X-I-A-S. She broke her word to Lokeus. And Mm -hmm. she says, um, for my trespass, none believed me ever again. Mm-hmm. So, but, that, but then the course says, but we do, all that you foretell seems true to us. Yeah. Is that what you were meaning? 
Yes. And even as she goes on, um, it seems like there's a, there's interaction between her and not just the chorus, but leader in particular, who's a particular member of the chorus. Chorus. Um, Mm -hmm. He, he believes what she's saying. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder whether maybe Aeschylus meant this as a foreshadowing of the breaking of curses. Yeah. Like, yes, the, the, the violence that rests on the house of Atreus and the sons of Atreus, it is continuing, but curses can be broken. And curses are being broken as well. Yeah. Because by this point, her her curse has already caused quite a bit of destruction, right? And so, yeah, and she's now been pulled away from her her homeland. She's she's in a, she's a foreigner in a foreign place, and uh, interestingly, crossing Poseidon's Poseidon's domain to get there, um, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. yeah, but that would that that's that's I hadn't thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense to think that this is a foreshadowing of that, right? That, that curse has kind of run its course to some extent and done, it's done the damage it's going to do. That's interesting. It's also interesting. And this is the first time I've thought of this, that Odysseus was also cursed by Poseidon and had to cross Poseidon's domain in order for it to be broken. Oh yeah. So maybe Poseidon's curses are only good, you know, once you cross the water, it's broken. I don't know. Like they're good on one. They're good on one shore. They're, they're only good on one shore. One shore. Yeah. Line. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Uh, Man, I, I keep looking through the play and I'm going, oh, we need to talk about this. We need to uh-huh. talk about this, but we yeah. can't. Yeah. I'm like, are we allowed to talk about this play again? Man. I, I think we'll have to come back and, I mean, we'll certainly refer, reference things back, right? As we, because as you mentioned, Brian. Yeah. This one was actually written as a trilogy, right? I mean, yeah. uh, we we covered, we we did um, the Oedipus cycle earlier, but as we mentioned on those shows, they weren't written in order. There was a large gap between when I think um, I forget which one was written for it now. I'm in a blank, but there was like like a 15 year gap between the first one and the second one. Then the second and third were written close together, and they were not written in order. So. I think there's probably some, there's a difference here, right? Where there's going to be a lot more internal consistency. So, um, yeah, I think we'll have to reference back to this play. Absolutely, I did run across a reference to Clytemnestra though in 1520. Just if if we link to those articles in the show notes, okay, um, where she's referred to as um, a black widow. Uh, talk <laughs> about weaving <laughs> yeah. here Excellent. in the black widow's black widow's web. You lie gasping out your life. Yeah, and I noticed that in the in the part that Andrea read earlier, um, she mentions like nets, basically the, the yep. ensnaring nets, which is a different kind of of different kind of weaving. So interesting. No, there's a lot more here. I'm, and if like I just I have Tantalus, his name here, it is you know marked in pink in my book, but mm-hmm. I didn't understand the lineage, right? So I really want to just reread this one even. Um, knowing the lineage because like I had names and, and then to know that Agisthus is actually Ag's cousin, right? Yes, yes. That's his cousin. And, and yes. the curse comes because Thaistes 
committed adultery with his brother's wife. Right. So we're crossing those two. So, okay. Yeah. yeah my copy yeah, of the Lattimore has a short, like in the introduction has the house of Atreus, like little thing, but it doesn't, it doesn't go back as far as what Brian was talking about. Okay. Um, but we did talk about Tantalus a little bit in when we did that first book of Herodotus, when I did that with Alec and Patty, because mm-hmm. he's the king of uh, Phrygia as well. So he, right. he gets mentioned right. in there. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is a messed up household. Yeah. Um, there's there's just constant um, adultery, intrigue, betrayal, cannibalism. You know, <laughs> it's murder. They're it's, willing to uh, eat the children, like that's the ultimate, right? But we're probably willing to do a lot of other things to the children before we eat them. Yeah, and it's, it's, or, it's at least at least kill them and cook them. I mean, it's 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 disturbing. Yeah, this yeah. is. Um, this is a household that, and that's the the amazing thing to me is that that had happened with Tantalus before the curse of Thyestes even right. was uttered. So. Well, it's specifically Argos that the this seat in Argos that he or kingdom of Argos that he curses. But you know, there's you can read it as as Menelaus's issues with Helen and Paris being part of that being part of that cycle too, right? That his house gets disturbed by that theft of of of. Um, of Helen. So yeah, yeah, this is a messed up family with a messed up that causes all kind of havoc. Uh, Line 61 says it's for one woman's promiscuous sake. Right. Helen. Right. Yeah. You can see which side Aeschylus falls on. It's a different Homer. Yeah. Homer, Homer cuts her some slack when you get to the, to the Odyssey, but uh, <laughs> not so much. But Aeschylus. I think, I think part of that could be that Aeschylus is setting the tone for, um, the women are going to be very active here um, <laughs> in this play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least. yeah. There's a, the most passive one is Cassandra. She's not even that passive, right? She's just not listened to. So, um, okay. Well, we have a lot that I'm sure we'll come back on, on this one with the next two plays. Brian, you're the only one who's read the next play. Any, any advice without spoiling too much for the audience and for us about what to be looking for in, in um, the libation bearers? I think if you really pay attention to the stage directions, pay attention to the scene, you know, kind of like with Agamemnon, it's very helpful. Um, And I think that uh, if you, if you, and even pay attention to the mood, uh, because I think that there is gradually kind of a change in mood from darkness, despair, middle of the night to, you know, gradually it it starts to change. It gets really, really interesting. So that's just, yeah. A little bit of nice. advice. Well, I'm so excited you're back with us, man. This has been fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Looking forward to it. Andrea, any final thoughts? Are we oh, I, I'm actually I, I'm gonna be surprised if any of our readers are content or our listeners are content with this episode because we've left way too much. Yeah, there's, there's a lot on the, there's a lot on the table. Way too much out here still. So I'm I'm struggling with that. Like I yeah, I have lots more questions. So that's where I am. All right. Well, they can send us their questions if they like, okay. wait, wait, you didn't talk about this. We'll try okay. and tie it in. Or they can come back at us in the Q&A or any of our many online places to talk. So thank you both for being here. Thanks, everybody who's listening, for pulling the book off the shelf and dusting it off and uh, joining us for this episode of Overdue Classics. Um, you can join us next week when we will dis- be discussing libation bearers. 
You can send your questions or comments to podcast at Cersei Institute.org and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcasts Network.